0: Hello, and welcome to the Script Subscribes podcast live stream. It's a new season. I'm out of practice, so you'll have to forgive me. Uh, we're joined today by a guest who has been on the podcast many times before. He's a fan favorite or audience favorite. Uh, he is a lit manager uh, at Empirical Evidence. He's also worked at Netflix, CAA, uh, Resolution. And so we're going to in writ large and we're going to chat with him today about all kinds of stuff, your questions. Uh, We're going to be talking about how to get a manager, which you may have already seen in some of our previous podcasts, but it's always good as a refresher and for those new viewers out there. But we've also got a ton of other questions that were submitted via Twitter, uh, and we're going to get to all of that today. So thank you for joining us. Hopefully you can see us. if You'll drop a comment in there to make sure we are streaming okay and you can hear us okay. Uh, But we're going to get started. Uh, Just a quick intro because you all know Dan. Dan's been on podcast. Everyone knows Dan. So everyone loves Dan. So Dan is here today. We're happy to have him. Uh, So thanks for joining us today, Dan. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Kevin.
0: It is always great to have you. You're always welcome. And I appreciate you coming on. So let's see here. Uh, We're, we're trying something new. This is a new season. We're trying something new, where the first segment After the intro, it's just a quick five questions that we wanted to go through to get information out there very quickly. Um, Topics and questions that are fairly common, that we get all the time, that we see all the time. But you were kind enough to tweet out, hey, does anyone have questions? And you got a ton of responses. So I would be remiss if I didn't say, hey, let's answer some of those questions, I think, right? So I think what we'll do is, uh, if it's okay with you... I would love to go through some of these questions and see what we can answer for the folks that uh, asked you on Twitter. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, The first question is from Mary-Kate Allen and she wanted to know how to find a decent entertainment lawyer asking for me, which is convenient.
1: Great question. Hi, Mary-Kate. Thank you for... I think that's a question that needs to be addressed more often. I think sometimes it's usually that you would have an agent or a manager first, and they would make an introduction. Hopefully they'd have you sit down with a couple people um, just so you can get a sense of, yes, the lawyer-writer relationship is more transactional than hands-on, but you want to get a sense of the types of deals that they do. You know, If you're a writer, you probably want someone that's more likely to be working with writers rather than say actors just so that they can speak to a familiarity of a uh, deal structure um i've definitely seen the difference between lawyers that are focused working with writers versus actors uh, there are a lot of great lawyers out there i think referral is the best way to go about it i wouldn't like seek one out but if you don't have representation uh, i would try to talk to other writers kind of explain the situation hey i have a deal this this is what's going on do you have someone that you like um, or if you're friends with other people in other aspects of the industry, I, I think that's the best way to go about it. If you don't have reps is just having conversations with other people that may have representat- or that may have uh, a lawyer um, or know someone that could be effective given the specificity of whatever your situation is. If there's no deal that's imminent, I don't know if you necessarily need a lawyer at that point. Um, and, and I think maybe the biggest thing to say is that you shouldn't be paying. The lawyer, they should be getting a percentage of the deal. Mm-hmm. There are some instances where people would pay. I've never had my clients pay, so I shoot for uh, a deal structure where they're getting five percent of what they're what they're closing for you.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's always a good uh, test. If you're actually having to pay before you're making money, is always sort of a a reddish flag, right? Well, it's like it's like reps
1: like in the deep valley that are like, yeah, yeah, I'll sign you. Uh, come in, you know, we'll get your headshot done. We'll get like a, whole, a website. It's just, you know, 10K. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, that's probably not legit.
0: Right, right. Um, Kim Hornsby, thank you for letting us know. We're coming in loud and clear. And uh, the next question is from Violet X. It's actually a three-parter. Uh, the third part is actually my favorite and most important, I think, of the three. Uh, I for- another question. <laughs> Yeah, how do query managers, one one looks for in a screenplay as a manager, and what are the best hole-in-the-wall restaurants in downtown LA? Violet X.
1: Wow, that's a, that's a hat trick
0: question. <laughs>
1: um, first question, how do you query? I, I've definitely addressed this before. Mm-hmm. I think the most important thing with querying is that you have an individualized response for each person that you reach out to that it's not just a copy and paste job, that you're sending the same thing to a hundred people, really put in the time and the research, go on IMDB, get a sense of the company, the manager. I mean, do do a little bit of a deep dive, get a sense of maybe their personality, the type of writers that they represent and, and how you see yourself fitting into the fold and then kind of curate that query to best fit each person. And so, yes, that is time consuming, but I would say it's better to send 10 to 20 really specified uh, query letters than like a hundred that feel exactly the same. Uh, what are write, What are reps looking for when they're looking at a script? I mean, that's a pretty broad question. I think something that's additive to the space, something that demonstrates voice. Uh, if it feels like it's just a sample, like it's something that like clearly cannot get made or would face a very uphill battle, how does the talent on the page translate to something that is more market-friendly. And I think that just starts the conversation, I think, more so now than ever. It's also about the fit from a personality standpoint. So I think, yes, a great script is super important, but it only begins the process of getting signed. Uh, Dive dive bars or restaurants in downtown LA. Uh, I mean, I'm still just eating outside, and I wouldn't say that I'm like going to Dive bars. I think mm-hmm. the value of like a dive bar, dive restaurant is actually being inside and that vibe. You kind of lose that when you're on a patio or right. like in a parking lot. Um, there's been a lot of cool additions in the arts district. This is definitely not dive spots, but there's this marketplace restaurant called Yangban Society. It's super cool. So it's like part deli, part restaurant, part bar you can get like really great food, but I think the cool part is like this little like market area where you can get like Korean snacks, like funky flavored like chips and stuff like that. And then they have like pre-made cocktails. Mm -hmm. So you get like the cocktails and the snacks, like just pay for it. And then you go outside to the patio and you can eat it there. And then if you want to get like real food, they have like one of those QR things. So you could just scan and then they'll bring you food on top of it. It's, It's a cool vibe. It's a cool spot. I believe it's on Santa Fe in the arts district in
2: downtown.
0: There you go, I'll have to check it out. Uh, The next question coming from our homeboy, David Wales, who's one of the uh, mods in our uh, uh, Discord channel and we love David, he's awesome. Uh, Hey David, so his question is, uh, would you advise different career strategies to a client who writes studio oriented scripts uh, and one whose work seems more suited to the independent market?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think just kind of taking it a little bit broader, uh, you know, we probably have about 50 clients. It's a wide ar- array of writers, directors, podcast creators, playwrights, uh, short story writers, novelists. So yeah, every, I think every client we have, it's a totally different strategy. A- and I think like going back to the finding a rep, part of the equation is really pushing them to get a sense of how do they approach their clients? Because I think there are bad reps out there that say that say the things that you want to hear in, a, in that initial conversation, but probably take the same approach with every client. Like they will quickly flip it to an agent and have the agent do the majority of the work, or they'll just blast you out for every staffing opportunity rather than curating for the ones that make sense for your samples or just send your feature script to the people that they're friends with rather than who makes the most sense. So yes, I think having a curated plan based on, okay, I'm trying to do studio stuff or indie fair has to be done. Otherwise you're going to fail regardless of what path that you're trying to take.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. Uh, The next question from D Santana says, public domain IP, are you for them or not?
1: I can't say I'm like diving deep into it, looking to make the next great Gatsby or I don't know, whatever is in the public domain. But I think if it's something that a writer presents saying, hey, I did a deep dive and I've come at it from a unique point of view, that's worth considering, but I don't view it as, oh, this is a cheat code or this is an easy way to get something done. I would say that I'm more interested in the quality of the intellectual property rather than where it fits. I mean, if you're an established writer and you have fans, there are production companies that would be willing to spend money to get you something that maybe uh, has a better trajectory in terms of disrupting the marketplace. So can it be a path? Yes. Is it something that I'm really focusing on? No, unless a writer presents it to me.
0: Right. Um... Here's a question and actually ties into one of the uh, first five questions that I was going to ask, which we've pushed to the side this time. We'll have to have you back on. I can relay those questions next time since we have so many submitted questions, but it ties into that. So maybe we'll put them both together for this one. Uh, Ms. Marsha asked in a query, if you have a producer, actor or known actor currently reading interested uh, in the script of that log line should it be mentioned
1: it's a gray area for sure i I think the most important thing is to be honest about it and not try to inflate what's going on right Um, if you have a star attached to it that's cool if it's a low level producer that doesn't add value it probably would dissuade my interest I think I've been forthcoming with people in the past saying, hey, you already have someone involved. They're going to be the ones championing this. I'm not going to carry them. Uh, Otherwise, they really have no value as a producer. So it's a gray area. I I think if if it's someone that's clearly adding value. uh, Yes, that's great. If it's like, oh, yeah, I submitted it to. Bellevue and they're reading it, is that going to make me more excited to want to read it? Right. Probably not. Like, I don't care. Like, you just submitted a query to them. Like, they're going to look at stuff. So I'd say use it carefully. If it is value added, yes. But more likely than not, it, it, it's just going to probably keep me from being interested.
0: Right. And it sounds like from that question, the actor and the actor-producer, I guess it was two different elements were interested in reading the script based on the log line. And it sounds like to me that they may be sort of jumping the gun to get your attention. If that actor and or actor producer were seriously interested in the film after reading the script and they picked up the phone to call you saying, hey, I like this script. You know, we're looking for a production company or this writer really deserves a manager. They're fantastic, whatever. That's a different story, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think like, it would be too premature to just say hey they like the log line there's so many hoops to jump through right. beyond that um, i always try to temper expectations even with my own clients that it's a long drawn-out process before something becomes monetized mm-hmm. so, like if i send this a, uh, an email to like monkey paw they want to read it i'm not going to like go to the client and be like hey monkey paw wants to read it it's like mm-hmm great. We're just starting the process of moving something forward. Um, even right now where I have multiple offers on a project, it's like, well, we, we still need to get those numbers up. Like I'm not that excited. So
0: Right. Um, and that leads me to sort of the other question I had when you would said an attachment, if it adds value, what sort of attachments add value? Cause a lot of writers think that, Oh, this person was the seventh lead in some indie film or was the, you know, had a guest starring spot on an episode of such and such TV show 20 years ago or whatever is an attachment's an attachment. I've seen them on TV. So they're an attachment or they've been in a studio film at some point. They're an attachment for those out there who are looking to get an attachment thinking that it'll uh, will enhance the value of their script. In the eyes of reps and executives and whatever, what adds value to a script in terms of an actor, a filmmaker, person, uh, producer? Obviously, if they have a studio deal, but what sort of attachments add value in your mind?
1: Sure, I mean, I would say if you're an unrep writer, you shouldn't be going out of your way to attach elements. More likely than not, unless there's some kind of personal connection or happenstance, it's just not going to be someone of value. Look, if you could get like Miles Teller or Glenn Powell to star in your like action thriller, like coming off of Top Gun Maverick, yeah, that's value added. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'd say it's an A-list star at a major agency that's currently active. It's not like someone that did something 20 years ago at a high level, and it's just looking to get a paycheck. It, it has to be someone that many studios, producers, financiers view as a reason to finance or make something. And that's a small pool. I just don't think that that's a game that should be played without representation. I play that game, but very carefully, like I can go to UTA and get talent ideas for a project or go to CAA and get director ideas, but only with the absolute best of the best projects like i know what moves the needle and it's not a lot of things um so i think rather than like say hey you know go out and try to get tom cruise to start on your project just focus on getting representation that that's probably a better incremental step Mm -hmm. than trying to play a lottery ticket of attaching an a-list director or a-list talent because realistically you're not going to be taken seriously and you don't have any money to offer or it's just it's a confusing path. And more likely than not, you're going to attach someone that doesn't move the project forward.
0: Right. And sometimes they could even uh, detract. If you're attaching producers that don't add value 100%. as a producer yourself, it, why are they carrying this dead weight around? Right.
1: Yeah. And I, I would say that I'm barely a producer. Like I, that's not my focal point. and, and, sure. and mostly because I know that I don't add value that I can be rewarded or incentivized with going with particular producers if it's a competitive situation or if I'm able to secure intellectual property. Mm -hmm. But I think for someone to call themselves a producer on a project, you kind of have to justify your seat at the table. And I think when it comes to unrep writers trying to bring producers into the fold to try to get someone like myself excited, I know pretty quickly whether that person is dead weight or if they can be additive to the project in the majority of the time a poor attachment will keep me from wanting to engage because I know that I'm going to have to do all the work and I'm probably not even going to get a producing credit.
0: Right. Right. Um, Good times in the chat. I see your question. We'll get to it in just a minute. We're actually going through all the Twitter questions um, right now. So let's see. We've talked about this before. Actually, Gina G has a question. On Twitter, And we've talked about it before many times, and it's super important because we all talk about, and it's sort of this amorphous concept of voice. But Gina G asks, I know everyone probably has a different definition for this, which is true. Uh, but what does a screenwriter's voice mean to you?
1: I don't want to put it in a box. I don't want to define it because it's more of something beautiful that you see and feel and it, it, it's a qualitative response than a quantitative response i don't even know if that makes sense mm-hmm. I, maybe the best way to frame it is this if 100 writers write the same thing there's going to be one writer that stands out because they've made it their own what special sauce have, have they done if everyone's telling a very similar story obviously they're all going to be different but the ones that really sing the ones that really resonate and, and kind of linger with you are the ones where. That writer's voice shines through. That they've added specificity and nuance and sophistication, and taken it in ways that it, it's clearly theirs. the The writer's DNA is is infused within the story. And if someone else wrote the same thing, it, it just would feel flat. And it's rare. Like, yeah, every writer technically has a voice, but when Writer, when reps say, "Hey, like you know, that writer's voice really makes this thing," it can be the difference between like something being a small little indie thing that gets no attention versus something that really jumps and gets a crazy response. I think right now, the projects that are really resonating in the marketplace, be it with agents, producers, executives, are the ones where the voice is really connecting with them in a big way, and I I think that's just more of what kind of emotional response is being evoked during the reading experience that speaks to the specificity of that writer's particular
0: style. Right. And I think that voice, the interpretation of voice and what voices sound like can be sort of Amorphous and can be subjective, but voice in and of itself, meaning a writer stands out as having a point of view of their own, right? Being unique—that is sort of a universal thing. It's just how that voice is received and interpreted is different. And I think a lot of newer writers that ask the question, "What is voice?" or "How how do I know what my voice?" haven't found it yet. I mean, think about some of the, and and they can be subtle it can be a like, thematic like i always include something about a relationship between father and son because of you know my relationship with, <clears throat> excuse me my relationship with you know my son or my father or whatever or it could be something uh, very uh, artistic and 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 ties more into the style stylistically for example think about a writer like Shane Black or William yeah. Goldman or Aaron Sorkin you know their writing Just reading, it doesn't have to have a title page. You know it's their writing, right? Uh, So it can be, again, subtle. It can be thematic. It can be stylistic. But ultimately, nobody could have written that script except for you. And and that's that's, tough to do.
2: That's it right
1: there. Like, I think that's the way to define it. And I think writers that are kind of on the up and up in their career, it's probably a work in progress in terms of. Discovering your voice, and I think it just takes time and writing more scripts and right. figuring out ways to make it better. Um, but I wouldn't force it. Like you, you shouldn't try to steal. <laughs> you shouldn't try to mimic because it's just going to always feel like the lesser than version of what's already been done. I think having a unique voice or the voice that is truest to you is always going to be better than the voice that you think the industry wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's maybe a problematic area for some writers that they think that okay. You know, I'm not really resonating with people. Let me try this. And it's like, no, just keep going. I think that's the most important
0: thing. Well, I mean, in film school, how many kids out there, or students out there, I shouldn't say kids, but how many students, film students out there are trying to mimic Tarantino or mimic the Coen brothers or something instead of trying to find, but that's part of the learning process. And, you know, your voice will change over time and it'll grow and it'll morph. But ultimately, yeah, finding your voice, I think, your point of view and perspective of the stories that you want to tell but um okay so the next one is uh let's see here jim bond and launch hopefully i pronounced that right oh the jim bond okay uh do you think the growing number of contests is lessening the overall value writers get out of them
1: yeah i think that's a that's a fair sentiment
0: yeah
1: i think there are certain contests that will always have Inherent value. And I'm not going to list them because I don't want it to be viewed as an endorsement. I think it changes, but I think, you know, writers talk and everyone kind of has a sense of which ones do matter. But I've said this before there are great scripts that are not very contest friendly. There are bad scripts that do really well. And I think for me at this point in my career, it's more about the log lines that intrigue me and what I read on the page rather than, oh, I'm a semifinalist or, oh, I even won. I mean, I'd say that there are people that have won, we'll say nickel, for example, I have no interest in signing them, like mm-hmm. just because they won this thing doesn't mean that I'm going to immediately engage. Whereas you could be like, I don't know, a quarter finalist in a less known contest. And I just happen to read your script and it's great. So yes, contests can be helpful for some people. The oversaturation of contests makes it less interesting for reps but know that there are different paths for everyone, that it doesn't have to be the contest path if your script happens to be the one that just doesn't fit the mold of what plays well in the majority of contests.
0: Right. And I think you made a good point in that those at the top, the Nichols, the South by Southwest's and Austins, and those types of uh, uh, contests, those haven't been devalued. Those are still the cream of the crop. If you win those contests you may, you're not going to connect with every agent or manager out there, but you will get enough. You will get attention, right? It's those smaller contests out there that, I mean, maybe it's an ego boost or, you know, maybe not necessarily having your ego boosted, but maybe, you know, a confidence booster, I should say, not ego boost. Yeah.
1: That's a good point. Right. Like, it's like, it's a motivation to keep going. mm -hmm. It's the proverbial pat on the back that like, yeah, you're on your way. Right you are progressing in your career and, and moving towards the goals that you're trying to achieve.
0: Yeah, and sometimes you need that, right? In, yeah. In, in a business I, where- I need that on my
1: side of things right. too.
0: <laughs> I saw someone post something. I don't remember who it was on Twitter and I thought it was hysterical. And it was someone posted that uh, being a screenwriter and not, being, not wanting rejection, not wanting to face rejection, it's like being a boxer and not wanting to be hit, right? It comes with the territory. So, uh, but little things like little contests, you know, I should say, say little, but contests that aren't as prestigious as again, Nickel and Austin and whatever uh, can be great, but you have to temper your expectations of what that actually means within the industry, because there are so many and uh, don't expect much to come up. Maybe something will, but don't expect much to come from it. But those top level contests will get you attention. Generally yeah,
1: speaking. Absolutely. And I would say this, and again, not an endorsement, mm-hmm. but it seems like the writers that do well in that, like, script pipeline contest mm-hmm. that's announced, like, over the summer, right. they get signed, they make the blacklist, and they sell their projects. Like, again, not an endorsement. Sure. But I would say that, like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. So, like, I'm actually looking forward to see what comes out of that one, because the past couple years, like, those writers have done quite well.
0: Right. And they seem like pretty good folks over there. I don't know them that well. And this is not an endorsement either. Uh, I always, whenever a screenwriter has to pay money, like we do this for free, uh, this podcast and all that we've done, but if you have to pay money for it, there are certain things being val- that are valuable for your money and many, many, many things that are not. Uh, and I'm not here to judge one or the other currently, but uh, what I will say is um, in terms of contests, if you have the resources and want to pursue some of them, again, start from the top down, right? The, the most prestigious contest. And if you have a lot of extra money floating around and you want to dive further, cause you never know where you're going to make that connection where you're going to um, find success because it, it can, it, obviously it's elusive, but you don't know where you're going to find it, but um, it, it can be those smaller or less well-known contests are really more of I guess a small feather in your cap and to prove that somebody out there does like your work but a lot of it comes down to the quality and experience of the readers within that contest um like a lot of these smaller contests don't really pay right or they're not that experienced not a professional reader like i you know i was a professional reader for um uh, a number of years and i got paid to read scripts i read thousands of them and so on my background was uh, is probably a little more solid than some of these that are college graduates that have far less experience reading scripts. I'm not saying that I'm, uh, I am have better taste in particular, but at least I have more ex- experience. Kevin,
2: and, and... you do, you
0: do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, that's enough of that. Um, Heimson or Himson asks, lots of writers think that gigs instantly start rolling in once signing with a rep. I'm sure you've had this happen as well, uh, Dan, but what is the real process timeframe to breaking in a new writer as a rep months, years? Uh, And, you know, honestly, it's differs for every writer, but I mean, what is your take on that?
1: I think that's a really interesting question because what you just said is totally true. So I have a team of writers that the second I got involved with them, they had stuff that was ready to go and it's been a great process and they're making money and they're going to make a lot more money, hopefully. Um, but that's more of a product of them that they just write nonstop. They don't have a day job that they are all in on this. I don't even think it has anything to do with me. I think anyone that rep them would be killing it if, if they were at least decent. Um, but then I have a writer that it took a long time and now is like really hitting their stride in a big, big way, but it took years. And I think like part of that was me, part of that was them. And uh, it's really beautiful to see it happen. So there's no, there's no answer. Like there's so many variables at play. I would just say this, if your rep is busting their ass for you and Mm -hmm. responsive and putting in the time, be patient. It's not going to happen overnight. It could, but it's probably not. Um, But I would say it becomes problematic if your rep is, not investing in you if they're not returning your calls your emails giving Mm -hmm. you notes on scripts, setting up meetings whatever it is in terms of where you're at in the process of advancing your career that's what i think you should be aware of it's not like oh where the fuck is my 100k day two of being wrapped right it's more of like are we on a path is there a strategy is there a plan Mm -hmm. if two years in that's like not happening maybe it's a conversation you should be having uh, and, and two years. It's just like a ballpark figure. Obviously, like I think most reps will retain someone for at least a year. It really just depends on, Hey, are, are we a good match? Is our efforts kind of equal? Um, there's so many things at play. So like, I, I don't think that there's a number to throw out there. It's more of just getting a sense of whatever plan you have in place. Is that progressing towards whatever the goal is?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> And i would add as an addendum which i'm sure you uh would have added as well is one don't expect it to happen overnight it, you have to be patient with the process it's all a process and it could happen overnight but very rarely it's usually it's a, it's a process uh and secondly what i would say is don't stop uh writing and hustling because a lot of uh first time signees i should say of a rep think, okay, now my job is done. I wrote this script or these scripts. Now my job is done. Now it's time for this manager or this agent, whatever, to get me work. I'm just going to sit back. You call me when I need to start working again, when you've got me a job, right? And that's not it. You got to start working on your next script. You've got to currently work on the things that you're working on. If your script isn't up to par, uh, isn't ready for market, uh, working on your next project, worked on your next uh, pitches, uh, keep networking, keep hustling, keep Digging up whatever stone you can, like how hard you work to get that rep, you have to continue to do because it's your career, right? And rep only does, you know, he gets what 10%. So you still need to be doing a lot of work because you're getting the other 90%, right? So,
1: well, that's kind of the point, right? Like, and I've no, I know that I've said this before, but getting signed is not like the end all be all. That's Mm -hmm. that's getting started, right. Like so many people are like, oh shit, I got signed. And it's like, oh, okay. Like let, let's check in six months from now. Like, mm-hmm. you know, let's see what's up. So I think it's like, yeah, celebrate that win. Obviously that's a great step forward, but how are you going to make the most of that opportunity right. to further your career, get staff, sell a project and, and monetize your
0: writing? Right, absolutely. And we do have a few more questions in the chat uh from anthony mcbride and christopher sansone i haven't forgot about you good times we will get to all of your uh questions from the chat very shortly we're just still running through all the twitter questions which again uh dan had a ton of so uh we're working our way through them uh we're getting pretty pretty far bridget bell mcmahon wanted to know how about exploring ways to ensure your script's concept conceit is as engaging as possible before embarking on a first draft. Question.
1: It's a great question. Um, I would say if you don't have representation, I'd like to imagine that you're in a writers group. Um, if you're not, then maybe it's taking a look at the landscape of you know what's doing well. But even that is a bit dangerous. Like you shouldn't be chasing something based on what's doing well, like in the box office or on streaming or in the trades. But I think it's doing some research, communicating with other people. But, but even at that point, if you still don't know, I mean, I, I think having conversations with like non-industry people, like most people do consume uh, film and TV and just kind of get a sense of like, hey, is this something that you'd watch? I, I know that that's like probably not the best approach, but I'm basically just saying if you don't have any other avenues, I think ideally it's that writers group is a great way to workshop ideas really get thoughts from other people that are working within the industry in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, but the idea is this, like I, I wouldn't not do something because you feel like there's too many of those projects in, in the marketplace already. It's almost like, for example, if you're doing a world war II project, very popular subject matter, it's costly, it's period, whatever. But if you can crack something that comes at it from a unique point of view that's maybe more intriguing and more interesting than the actual subject matter itself. It, it's more, how can you take a concept and flip it on its side, make it something really different? Uh, I think, for example, trailers that have recently come out that, that are doing that uh, the princess movie that I think is on Hulu, the menu, it's a searchlight project. Those are good examples of if you just like pitch the like subject matter, I don't know if you'd actually get the full scope of, how those writers and filmmakers have kind of twisted it to make it more of its own thing. And I think that should be the goal rather than just focusing on, on themes or, or subject matter. It's what are those differentiating factors to give it urgency, to make it feel splashy within the
0: marketplace. Right, right. Uh, let's see here. Nicholas Philippa says, hi, Dan, thanks for letting us ask questions. What's your level of involvement in script development? And do you follow any particular structure format?
1: good question. Um, so my background uh, before I got into Hollywood was I was a journalist. I was an editor. I was a writer. I covered mid-league baseball, U.S. soccer, NBA. I am a good writer. Uh, I'm not a screenwriter, totally different. But I think my skill set as an editor translates well in terms of the quality of notes that I give to clients. I, too, was a professional reader, so I've read thousands of scripts, I've given coverage at every level, contests, websites, I've worked for A-list directors, uh, even had to do coverage when I was working at agencies and management companies, so I think combining those two things is why I am a very hands-on manager, there are some managers that are pretty much agents in t-shirts and jeans instead of suits. Uh, I like to do both. I I like to be very hands on in the creative process. But I think that I can, even though legally, I suppose I'm not supposed to be selling, I can sell as well as most agents. Uh, I know exactly how to do it. I know who to go to. I know how to close deals. So yes, I would say that I'm more development focused than a majority of managers, but I love selling. And I think that's a really fun part of the job, too.
0: Let's see here. Uh, Dee Santana has another question. When to give up on a script and when not to give up?
1: That's uh, super important. Um, I I think I've boiled it down to this. When a script is just becoming different and not better, Mm -hmm. that's probably a good time to put it aside. Uh, I think that there is a tipping point where a script becomes overwritten, it's not progressing. And it just become clear that this is not something that's worth taking out to the market because it's just not going to get the response that we're looking for. And not everything is meant to sell for some writers. Yes, that is the case, but some things can be a voice sample. Some things can be one's introduction to the town in terms of being able to generate meetings with the hopes of being you know in the mix for open writing assignments and things like that. Um,
0: I think you kind of know,
1: but if you need to, Get validation. I mean, I think it's talking to other writers. It's submitting to contests. It's posting maybe on the blacklist, But you know, that's obviously you know I don't want you to spend your money if you don't have to. Um, but you'll know. I I think I think it still boils down to that initial kind of concept of does it feel like it's just becoming different rather than becoming the best version of it? That that's when you know that it's not quite a project that should be uh, continued on.
0: Right, and I think and uh, to your point also. The biggest thing is you do have to start a new script, right? So working for three years on one script is not productive no. and at all. So put it down, start, even if you're struggling and you can't finish it or you finished it, but you are constantly rewriting, it's not just right. At some point, even if you're going to go back to it later and, and fix, you need some distance from it, so put it down, start something new, right?
1: Yeah, that's a great point, right? You may become a better writer for this project by writing two other scripts.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: The separation of time is super important, but you can level up as a writer just by doing something new, come back to it with fresh eyes. You, I don't know, develop more of a voice or you can look at it more analytically. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, it, it can improve. But yeah, you should feel comfortable. There's no shame in giving up on a project. Nothing is dead forever. It's just, put it aside and focus on something else.
0: Right. Uh, Don Ackerman asks, Hey, Daniel, when a client is told by a producer to deliver a specific type of genre, and then your client does that, but then the producer asks for something else completely different the next minute, rinse and repeat that a few times. How do you talk your client off a ledge? He added an LOL, but I don't think that there was really a lot of laughter going on there.
1: Yeah, I mean, unless they're getting paid to do the different version, that's a problem. And I'd probably get an agent or a lawyer involved to stop that from happening. I've dealt with that in the past, and I've had writers write in circles based on bad notes from producers, and I'm very mindful of not letting that happen. It doesn't matter the the amount of Academy Awards or box office titles that someone has, if if they're taking advantage of a writer. It's my job to protect them from such behavior. So if you did the work that you were asked to do, and then they want to take it in a totally different direction, that to me is a totally different step. If you're being paid to do it, if you're not being paid to do it, run. Seriously, Mm -hmm. not worth your time.
0: Right. And I've actually heard sort of the reverse one time where a, and this was working at an agency. So this was a, a, an established writer, uh, pitched a project to, uh, producers they hired him paid him money to write this pitch in during the writing process right, said writer decided hmm, i'm going to do something completely different turned in a draft that was completely different than what he had pitched them was promptly fired and replaced so it does go both ways i've heard of it yeah,
1: and, and that is totally the right response by the producer like if if you were being paid to do something you need to adhere to those expectations you don't need to go rogue and, and kind of color outside the lines. The second you're being paid to do something, you need to follow whatever mm-hmm. the expectations were. right. Uh,
0: Jim Bond has another question. Uh, do you think the stigma around the word networking is hurting new writers? I don't know of this stigma, but you're you're social networking more than I am. You're on the media. The social media is more than I am. so
1: yeah, but I'm just trying to get a blue check mark. It's totally different uh, <laughs> It's a great question. Yeah, I think that there's a balancing act there. Um, There's an executive that I work with that's also a writer. And I think she approaches networking the right way. You You wanna get to know people, you wanna see how you can help, this is it. See how you can help other people rather than making friends to see how they can help you. When I worked at CAA, people wanted to be friends with me because they thought I could do something for them. I'm not friends with those people anymore, fuck them. Uh, I always try to take the approach of how can I help others? I don't really care how people can help me. I know that if I bust my ass, have good clients, treat people the right way, all those things will happen. So I don't think that writers that are trying to move up in their career should look at other people as like, oh, what can you do for me? I think that's how networking can rub people the wrong way. It's get to know someone, be friends or be friendly, be cordial. Don't look for handouts. See, you know, how you can help someone, even if it's as simple as reading their script, giving them thoughts, just be a decent human being and not look for ways that someone with perceived value can open up doors for you. Because if you're decent and helpful, that will happen.
0: Right, um, well, why don't we jump to a few of the questions in the chat, just a few right now, and then we'll jump to our topic because we've already been going for over 40 minutes. So uh, I don't want to run out of time here. Uh, to cover our topic which i think is an important one one we've covered before but i still think it's good for newer writers that haven't seen previous episodes or her and it's one that every writer is still has issues and maybe i'm sure you'll have a gem or two so i'm going to just go over a couple quick questions here uh good times asks i've written pilots for two live action sitcoms and an animated series what's the best way to schedule a pitch meeting with an executive who is looking for comedy
1: You're probably not, I I would try to get a rep first. I mean, it's just not gonna happen. That's not to shit on your question but that's an unrealistic expectation. Why why would they meet with you? You're not, what, what credibility? Like I have clients that have been staffed multiple times that are not in a position to pitch their project. So I think backtrack a little bit, look to get a manager, have that manager help you develop these projects or pitches to the point that they're of value, probably get staffed first. And then at that point, maybe you can pitch a project. I Mm -hmm. think like slow it down and view it as an incremental process rather than thinking that as an unrep writer, someone at a credible production company would want to hear a pitch. I mean, yes, there are companies out there where you can pay money to do something like that, but that's not the same level as actually doing it within the confines of the business.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's not impossible but it's highly unlikely like you said i mean i know writers well as well that are upper level writers that have to work to get meetings to pitch things and get their own show and you know they've been on a dozen shows they're co-ep's and yet they don't have a show on the air and it's 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 tough it can be tough um okay let's see here uh Anthony McBride. Hey, Anthony. Uh, I have seven features and four pilots. What should I be doing to get repped?
1: I think whittling that down to the one or two features or one or two pilots that really stand out, I think it is problematic when someone queries me and says, hey, I have 20 scripts. And it's like, well, you don't. You don't have 20 scripts. There are definitely going to be ones that are better than others. I think gauging the responses over the course of time when you do send out queries or you do submit to contests or you get responses from your writer's group or whatever, you should be able to have a good sense of which ones are better than the others and make a choice. But if you feel strongly about all the projects that you have, I would say try to curate your queries based upon the person that you're reaching out to. So like, if you're reaching out to me, like, I probably have no interest in like a fantasy project, for example, so throw that one out. Um, If you're reaching out to someone that just does TV, probably focus on just the TV stuff. So I think it's just be strategic about it, but also probably shave that list down or curate that list based on
0: who you're talking to. That's a good point. And I will say, Anthony, congratulations for having 11 scripts. I think that's great. That's so much better than a writer saying, I have this one thing and that's it. Right. So that's great. But two things. One, don't write that you have in a query or anything that you have 11 scripts because they will think, well, you have 11 scripts and no one's shown interest in you for 11 scripts, then yeah. you're probably not a very good writer. So I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying that's the He's perception. I've actually script. read
1: Anthony. He's a really good writer. Yeah. So like put that out there.
0: Yeah, no, no. I just want to say that would be the perception for a lot of reps saying you have 11 scripts and no one has decided to rep you. That's not a good sign. Um, and and But to Daniel's point, pick the one or two Good script what you think is the best and if you don't can't pick what you think is the best ask all your friends to you know which of your script is the best right and then use those one or two as you query that you know one or two projects because that's going to be what probably if, if most of your friends other writers industry folk think that you know of your 11 scripts these three or four are the best those probably are the best. And you should probably focus on those rather than just saying, Well, but I have a comedy too, even though my, my action thriller or my fantasy are, are really, really good. I still have a western or I have you know romantic comedy too, like to show your range. They're not interested in range, they're interested in someone being a master of one thing, really an excellent writer at something, right? Especially to start. Um, okay, so we'll get to one more question from the chat right now, and then we'll come back to it after we talk about our our topic of the day. Let's see here. Christopher Sansone says, how many scripts do you usually read in a week? Depends on the week.
1: I mean, there's some weeks where I'm in meetings nonstop. So that's not going to be a week where I'm prioritizing. It also kind of comes in in ebbs and flows, there's some weeks where 10 clients will send in a script. There's some weeks where I get one or two things from clients. Uh, queries, some days like I can get like 30 queries. Some days I can get five. I couldn't give you a real honest answer. I'd say I at least look at maybe 20 to 30 scripts per week. I'm not reading all of them in their entirety. I'm not giving notes on the majority. Um, but I think it's as things come in. I mean, I I never let my like pool of scripts get too deep. Like if it gets to the point where I have hundreds of scripts I need to read, I'm probably doing something wrong. Um, I definitely will always prioritize a client's project over anything else. Um, Then I would say it's a sliding scale of the quality of query that I get. You know, if WME is like, hey, this person needs a manager, that's probably the query that I'm gonna read first versus Mm -hmm. someone just being like, hey, I follow you on Twitter which is great too. Like I look at everything that I get, but I have to be mindful of my time. So my time is the most valuable commodity that I have. So to explicitly answer the question, we'll say 20 to 30 scripts per week.
0: Cool. And that's actually a great segue, perfect. Good job, Dan. Uh, In terms of, you talked about queries, you talked about uh, uh, representation and you know, if, uh, uh, referrals, right? If, if WME refers someone to you. So our topic of the week our uh, topic of the day week uh, was supposed to be, how does a screenwriter or I guess, TV writer, how do, how does a writer land a rep <clears throat> again? And there's, <clears throat> this is a topic that we've covered before to some degree, but I wanted to start off this season back to the basics. You talk about queries, you talk about referrals, maybe from, the top the best way from a referral from a top eight or somebody that's a power player to all the way to the bottom of a query from someone that you don't know on by email or Twitter what are the ways that people can reach you or reach a rep uh, and to what degrees are the varying uh, levels of success
1: sure it's a great question definitely something I've covered but let's dive into it again before I speak to that sliding scale, Mm -hmm. the most important thing. And I will stare directly into the camera because I know I never make eye contact. Having a great script is the most important thing. It gives you the best chance of not only getting signed, but having options. And I think having options is the most important thing when it comes to getting signed. It's not about signing with the first person that raises their hand, sometimes that is the case you wanna be able to sit down with multiple managers and potentially multiple agents to get a best sense of who is the right fit for you. So if you worry about nothing else, worry about having a great script. Even one great script is enough to get you signed. Okay, that's it. I won't look at the camera again. Um, so what's at the high end? At the high end is, okay, I have a meeting with an agent at CAA. This, this happened a couple of weeks ago have a great meeting. She's like, Hey, I have someone, um, doesn't have a manager. He's already working. He's making money. He seems like he'd be a good fit for you. Take a look at his material. So I'm going to prioritize that. Like if I met that person on a Friday, I'm reading that stuff over the weekend and I'm getting back to them Monday or Tuesday, because I'm going to assume that this person is probably sending this writer to multiple managers and that it's going to be a competitive situation. So I read it. I liked it. Yeah, the CAA of it all helps, but not as much as you'd think. Um, I wouldn't say like, oh, now this person's immediately my best client. Um, But I met with the person and we signed this person. And so great. CAA loaded me with a client. That's very validating. That's exciting. And this person will have a good career. Great. I'd say a tier below that would be an executive or a producer at a company that I respect saying, hey, Dan, uh, I just met with this person. We're probably going to do a project with them. They're either leaving their manager. They've left their manager. They don't have a manager. You should read their stuff. Like I'll totally vouch for them. I'll put in a good word for you. Great. I'll read it. I'll prioritize it. I don't always sign these people. It's not always the best fit, um, but it's, it's, it's of interest to me. And it's probably, you know, just like a half step below a major agency reaching out to me about a potential client. I'd say a little bit below that would be either friends of mine that are working writers and directors in the industry or clients of mine saying, hey, again, someone's left their manager, they're going to leave their manager, or they don't have representation. I will prioritize that. That doesn't always work out. That's, you know, it's of interest, but these people don't always have a sense of what the bar is. And sometimes it's not for me politely or it's amazing. And I've signed a few people this way and some of these people are doing great. Some people it hasn't worked out and that's okay. Um, I would say below that would be looking at contests uh, or going on like say like Coverfly or blacklist and me seeking out potential people. Like I'll just run through hundreds of log lines uh, especially on Coverfly or, or Blacklist, where it's really easy. And yeah, the scores, I guess, help. I'm not going to like be interested in something that has low scores, but the high scores, like it doesn't mean that it's something for me. And a lot of those projects are really just samples and not something that can be monetized. But I will say this, two of my best clients have come from just finding them on the Blacklist. And I mean, literally just going into the website, not like the end of the year list, but just mm-hmm. going on the website, looking up scripts, finding them, reaching out and, and signing them. And that's great. I think it's become more competitive and anything that's actually really good will be scooped up pretty quickly, but I've, I've found some real diamonds in the rough for sure. Um, below that would be participating in like pitch events through like a roadmap or through like stage 32, things of that nature where people are presenting me potential things. And, Here's why that's a half step better than querying. I actually get to meet them and Mm. talk to them and get a sense of who they are as a person rather than just relying on, oh, okay, like I like your concept, I like your script, but what are you like as a person? Because I think for me, I'm willing to say no to talented writers if I don't want to work with them, Mm -hmm. like because it's not a fit from a personality standpoint. And I think it goes both ways. Like I know that I'm not for everyone. I think I rub people the wrong way but I'm myself. And that's just the easiest way to be. Um, And it's easier to like weed things out before we actually start a relationship rather than being a few months in and figure out it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then I'd say below that would be connecting with people on social media. I I think keeping it to Twitter is probably best. The people that like follow me on like Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, it's like, come on, just,
2: just pick one fucking lane.
1: And I think Twitter is the best way because I will respond to dms i will say hey here's my email address i will try to answer questions but I also do research on twitter like Mm -hmm. there are certainly people on there that i would never sign just because they're fucking assholes like Mm -hmm. the way you conduct yourself in a public forum even if it is twitter it can help you or it can hurt you so i think writers should certainly be mindful of that and then i think at the way way bottom would be straight up queries A query can be enhanced if you say, hey, like I connected with you on Twitter or something like that, great, I will flag that. I will take a look immediately. I think the queries that I'm most likely to just dismiss are the ones where the font's different because you've copied and pasted it. And it's like, dear, it's like dear Derek. It's like, no, Dan, like not Derek. I mean, Derek's my business partner, but it's like, just take the effort to fact check, to to change the font, even if you are copy and pasting. Uh, But I think, like I said earlier, if you can curate a query to fit me, that you, you've seen me on uh, scripts and scribes, like you've seen me uh, on other things, or you know something about me or my clients, like that's just a way to kind of feed my ego and get me to pay attention. So I think like that's the majority of the way things come in. I, I'm, I'm a judge for some contests, so I definitely get early access to some things, can't say I've signed anyone that way. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that's the majority of how clients come my way.
0: Right. And what I'll say to, when you had mentioned saying, personalizing it, saying they'd seen you on scripts and scribes and they really liked you and, and you seemed fairly really sharp or whatever. You said, oh, it's an ego stroke, which, you know, everyone likes to hear compliments. Like never, that's, that's why you shouldn't be bad-mouthing people on Twitter, right? Because you don't want it to generate uh ill will but what i will also say is that by saying i'd seen you or I read or heard you on the podcast scripts and scraps whatever or whatever con- you know thing you've been on um it shows also the fact that you're doing your research you're doing your homework you're you're hustling behind the scenes because i can't tell you how many times i get emailed by people saying how do i get an agent how do i get a manager it's like we've done a hundred i mean this is Right. The 41st live stream, but we've done 200 podcasts before that. And, and even besides us, there's hundreds and hundreds of articles and other podcasts about you haven't done any of that work because you want it handed to you. And that, that's a big red flag, at least in my eye, somebody who's not willing to put up that work and effort to help their career, right? Because if they were, they'd be turning over every stone. They'd be doing research. They'd be contacting people. They'd be how not just sending out random one line emails. How do I get an agent? Okay. So, you know, by saying I had seen you, at least it shows the effort. Like I, they are putting the time into, you know, the 10 part of that 10,000 hours, right. To become yeah. a professional writer. It may not be helping their writing craft, but it is helping their knowledge of, and understanding of the business and the way things work. Cause that's part of it. You know, when you send them into meetings, how are they going to handle themselves? Right.
1: Well, that's, that's a great point. Like I think there are writers that I continue to engage with that I don't represent because I like them. It has nothing to do with their talent. I mean, obviously it has to be at a certain bar in which like I can see them progressing to the point of getting representation, but I want to help good people. And I think that like tempering desperation, tempering over eagerness. and, And I think like, not having a sense of entitlement is really important. And, and I think like it's become harder and harder for writers, at least from my purview, to fall into those traps. I think it, it's difficult right now to get representation. I think a lot of reps are concerned about servicing the clients that they do have. And I think that's part of it. Like I think that's that that needs to be part of the mindfulness of the unrepped writer is it's not always about like, hey, I don't like you or hey, you're not good enough. It's hey, I I have an existing book of of writers and directors that I need to take care of. If I'm not prioritizing them, then that's a problem. And so sometimes it really is a bandwidth issue. I know that there are some reps right now that are not taking on uh, developmental level clients. I mean, I'm always looking. I'm always looking to improve my overall list of clients. And I know that that manifests in a lot of different ways. So it, it could be a LinkedIn thing. It's probably not, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that the Twitter query couldn't be better than the CAA referral. So that that's that I think is a sense of optimism that I that writers should kind of keep in the back of their mind.
0: Right. Um, okay. So we've covered that, and there are other aspects of how to get a rep. But I thought that that was sort of important on the avenues to connect with a rep. That was sort of the most important part. Um, We were already at an hour. So we do have a few more things to cover. Do you have time to answer some more questions before we jump into the last five minutes, ten minutes of your own Yeah, of
1: course. I I do have to play uh, tourist with some people in town, so if people see me on Hollywood Boulevard today, yeah, that (laughs) actually is me.
0: You may actually, now that you said that, you may (laughs) set yourself up. Uh, Let's see here. Okay. Um, Tom H. asks, thank you so much for doing this Q&A, Kevin and Daniel. Well, thank you for joining us, Tom. Uh, What's your philosophy on burnt reeds? Oh, I don't hear often that about we don't often hear about burnt reads, but yeah, what's your thought on that? Burning reads. What does that mean? When you send something out, um, like for, as getting something read as a favor and it turns out to be not very good, then you sort of burn that. Yeah, and and you're, I mean, and the person that you've burnt that read with is less likely to re want to read another script of yours, so you've just sort of burned that, right, opportunity.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say this, like, I think the answer is obvious, but maybe not so much. So yes, like clearly be mindful of having something ready, but I'd like to think that you should have some relationships in your life where people will always Mm. take a look and be helpful. Yeah, Uh, There are writers that I'm Mm. friends with, that I've been friends with for since college, uh, which is like, you know, 18 years ago, uh, that I'll always read their material. I'll always be honest with them, no matter how bad it is. But that's more of, speaking to the foundation of our relationship that we are friends first. So I think like being aware of that, if if it is like a read that you're probably not going to get again, if if it's not up to snuff and look, I don't think the expectations are something needs to be perfect, but if you know it's not ready and you don't kind of frame the conversation that way, that's how you can alienate yourself. So mm-hmm. I think like, be mindful of the reads that you know you're probably not going to get again if it's not up to the level, but also think about the relationships that you do have where you can kind of test scripts with them, knowing that you're not going to burn the relationship because it is strong.
0: Right. And I think that's, that's a great way to do it, right? Use those, those resources and, and close contacts to vet those scripts you have so that when you are burning reads, uh, using that one shot for, uh, uh, a producer, a writer, or I mean, an agent or whoever that, you know, it's good because you've had other people in your life tell you that it is good.
1: Yeah. And just to kind of further that a little bit, if you're sending to a rep and you know, it's not ready, then don't,
0: mm-hmm. that's it.
1: <laughs> like, 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 don't even tell a rep, Hey, it's not ready. Like, right. <laughs> I don't want to look at something that's not ready. Why? But, right. but how is that How is that going to get me excited about representing you?
0: I mean, I have to tell you, uh, I when I was a reader at a production company at Warner Brothers, I had got, and even at CAA, I got script. And at CAA, if it's your client, it's different, right? But at a production company, when you're receiving material and it's not, like solicited, like it's not part of a deal. I've seen things come in with first draft right on the cover page. Yeah. And it's something that it's a submitted script. It's not like, oh, a client wants feedback. So they, before we send it out, or at a production company, you're sort of developing some stuff with some writers sometimes. So you're just trying. To... No, this was a submitted script for potential sale or for potential signing or whatever with first draft on the cover. Don't do that. I'm not saying that anyone listening would, but I've seen that, which is just ridiculous.
1: It's pretty funny. I mean, I would say this, like even some of my clients, they've sent things in that feel like more of a vomit draft than a first Mm -hmm. draft. And I'll push back and say, Hey, this isn't ready for me to take a look at unless we've explicitly said, Hey, you know, send me the first act. I think it's just about establishing expectations and being open in terms of communication. Right. But if you said you're going to deliver something that's ready to work on and it's not, like right. that's a problem and I, I will push back.
0: Right. And that's a good point too. A lot of writers will write multiple drafts and then the one they're happy with at some point, happy-ish, because no writer's ever truly happy, right? Uh, with their script. But when it gets to a point that they feel comfortable with it, they'll they, they consider it, this is the first real draft, right? So maybe this writer was saying, this is the first real draft, but it's actually the third or fourth version. That being said, the perception is when you send something out with first draft on the cover, it's feels like you haven't done enough work on it, right? Just- Yeah, it's also like, don't give
1: anyone a reason to dismiss or go into it with the wrong kind of expectations. Right. If I got that from someone, I'd be like,
0: (laughs) 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 Right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Jack Cross. Hi, Kevin and Daniel. Can you share thoughts on open writing assignments? So, wh- I guess Jack wants to know about OWAs.
1: I think it's something to think about once you have representation. Mm-hmm. I think it's something to think about once you have at least a really strong sample that's been exposed and you have fans. Um, there's two ways to go about it. So, say, I'm taking out a script and maybe it's the first time I've taken out a script for a client. It'll go to X amount of places. Not every place is obviously going to buy it, but a lot of people want to meet. And so when you meet with those executives or producers, they're going to talk about, hey, what are you interested in? What what are you looking to do next? And they might have something that could be of interest. Um, Sometimes it's a book, sometimes it's an article, sometimes it's a remake of an existing property that they control. So like right now, I have a client that's out for a open writing assignment for a book. He's putting together a pitch. It's probably him and a couple other people in the mix for that. Uh, Another set of clients, the producer has a short story. They're the first ones that are going to have a shot to crack it, which is kind of exciting. Um, Sometimes we actually have IP ourselves and we'll try to load it with our own clients and then take that out as a pitch. But I would say don't look to get open writing assignments until you have representation until you maybe sold something or made a big splash with a sample and then have relationships. You, you need to like prove yourself in that first general. So Mm -hmm. then they can start to think about you. And then if you have a good rep, your rep will be in constant communication with these people. So maybe it's been a bit since you've met, they'll check in and be like, Hey, what do you have? They'll kind of say, and then the rep should be like, Oh yeah, Kevin would be great for this. So like, let's Let's get him in the mix. Mm -hmm. So it's an incremental process. I think you have to be at a certain point where you do have representation. You do have a great sample and you have fans that Mm -hmm. people want to work with you. And that's how open writing assignments can manifest. But sometimes it's a bake-off and it's like 30 writers are in the mix and do a lot of work for free. A good rep will make sure that you don't do too much and overexpose yourself and spend so much time. Uh, for something that isn't that manageable so have your rep trying to push to kind of get a sense of what are the expectations because maybe there are some bake-offs that you know this is your dream project and you do want to go for it Mm -hmm. maybe it's something that's not a great project that doesn't pay a lot of money and there are a ton of people involved probably not a good way to focus your time
0: right no that's great that's absolutely true uh let's see here nick kaufman says what do you look for in a show bible and can a meh show bible ruin a script
1: yes so i would say i don't really care unless it's great uh if it's great it can be additive most are not great um it really only matters if the pilot itself is awesome if if there's no awesome pilot That's not going to save you. So I wouldn't necessarily focus so much attention on that. Um, I think it's, if you have a great pilot and you can create a great Bible, awesome. But I, I think it's really more of conveying of how does this exist as a show? What gives this project the legs to exist for, you know, if it's not a limited series, say three seasons, um i want to get a sense of the world i want to get a sense of the characters i want to get a sense of where future seasons go and i think if you can somehow incorporate your voice into that bible that really kind of makes it exciting so that you can evoke the same emotional response you'd get from reading the pilot so that it really proves to be complimentary Mm -hmm. then like stylistically it doesn't have to feel like it has like all these fancy bells and whistles really focus on the substance and making it feel additive to the reading experience of the pilot Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Um, okay, so let's see here. Uh, rough Party. Oh, hi, Daniel. Joe Favalaro here. Uh, how important is it to you that a writer is willing to not only focus on the writing side of things, but be proficient in learning the business side as well?
1: Good question. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's something I'm looking for in terms of like that initial conversation I think it's more of if you don't know the business side don't pretend that you do Mm. I think if you do have a good sense of the business and you can convey that articulately within that conversation that we would have in terms of a signing meeting I think that's great Uh, I, I do think that there are some writers that I've met with that feel so green and have such a misunderstanding of the industry that it scared me in terms of signing them. So I think it's a balancing act. And uh, I think it really comes down to self-awareness. If you are self-aware that you are green and that you have a lot to learn, I I would convey that rather than pretending that you think you know it and you clearly don't. Mm. Uh, Not that I'm an expert, but I've done this for almost 10 years from a lot of different vantage points. And I did have to come into it uh, as an eager learner, as someone that came into it older didn't go to film school, not super connected. Uh, I wouldn't say that I faked it till I made it. I still haven't made it, I would say. But I, I think that willingness to learn and, and to, to be open-minded and take the tutelage of others is better than pretending that you are an expert when you're clearly not.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, plus, I think when you come across, when you push yourself as an expert, it comes from either one or two points. One, either you think you know, and it's that whole, uh, what is that, uh, God, it's the top of my head, the uh, uh, Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Where you think you have all the answers and the people who know the least about a subject think that they know the most because they don't know what they don't know kind of thing. It's that Dunning-Kruger effect, which can cause a lot of problems because you think you have answers and you have no idea what you're talking about. Sure. Or it comes from a place where you're sort of faking it, like you had mentioned, some people do, and you're exposed as a fraud because you'll be talking about things and not know what you're talking about and they'll see right through you. So either way, it's not a good situation, I think, uh, okay. in terms of appearances. Um, let's see here. Uh, Tom H., I'm a little behind because I got disconnected, but thanks so much for the answer and discussion. Love scripts and scribes. Thank you, Tom. We love you too. Uh, Ian Martin or Ian, Mar- Ian Martin. We'll go with Ian. Uh, I've seen his name around a lot. Ian. So, uh, hi Dan and Kevin. Welcome back. We've missed you both. Well, thank you, Ian. We've missed you too. Uh, Joanne Lolly. Welcome back. So glad you are back at it. Well, thank you for joining us today, Joanne. We appreciate it. Um, and this is a great opportunity for us to join in to our last segment. Again, we're trying to break things up into segments, although this was sort of not necessarily, uh, as well choreographed as hopefully we'll be continuing in the future. Uh, <laughs> because Dan has so much, so many, uh, uh, followers on twitter and have so many questions but it was great we, we got a lot of stuff covered but the last 10 and then uh, um i guess there's a couple more questions popping in but we'll we'll ask the we'll do jump to this part first before the last part so this is not the last 10 but the second to last 10 again we're we're, we're off track here but it's all right there's a lot of good stuff here so for the last section the second to last section i want the guests to select a topic of conversation, uh, current event, and industry-related story, a fun anecdote, writing advice, uh, personal news. What is it? And I had given you, a, you know, a little bit of advance notice. I'm curious to see what you came up with. What do you want to talk about? This is your chance to to talk about something you want to talk about and opine on something that you're passionate about. Oh, Other man. than writing or could be writing.
1: Related. I thought you were going to pick from the, the thoughts that I had sent over. No, no,
0: no. This is on you. You pick one of the things you, you talked about. Which one do you um, want to
1: come? I'm curious like to talk about like does the success of Top Gun Maverick give mm-hmm. optimism for the future of theatrical? It's For me, it's been one of those rare films that's received universal praise from everyone that I've spoken to. Most people I know have gone to the theater to see it I mean I I guess like that would make sense unless they had like an illegal link um I don't know what are your what are your thoughts on that like is this false hope is this a blip on the radar is this like because it's such a legacy title with like the mixture of uh old A-list and Tom Cruise and then like rising A-list with um Glenn Powell and Miles Teller like I don't know I I'm curious what your thoughts are like are you Are you hopeful off of this? Does this bode for the start of a fantastic theatrical summer? How does COVID play in? How does the slow demise of Netflix play in? It's very interesting to me. I think about this all the time.
0: Yeah. I mean, personally, I think that film in theater will never truly go away because it's that communal experience. So people always, I mean, COVID obviously changed the, the dynamics of that just but that COVID is going to go away at some point or become endemic or whatever. COVID's not going to be around with the same sort of effects forever, right? Uh, right now there's a slight uptick, a surge, but again, it's not going to be around forever. And I think that like going to theme parks, um, which, you know, people play video games. Why do you need a theme park? There's something visceral about going into a theater, the booming stereo, around an audience cheering on opening night, that kind of thing, uh, being completely engulfed in it no matter how advanced screening systems, you know, with a 90-inch TV and the Dolby Surround are at your house, there's always going to be a communal experience about going to a movie theater. And I don't think that's going to go away. That being said, I think a lot of the the smaller films and and things like that, star vehicles, tentpole pictures, I think will continue to be popular. I think you're going to see fewer seats because theaters, if the you know those watching or listening don't understand the economics of a theater 90 percent, especially opening weekend but it, and it goes down percentage-wise over the course of weeks but 90 percent of the box office goes directly to the studio right the theater doesn't make very much money unless it has legs unless it's there in the theater for 12 weeks when by week 12 they're they're getting 70 percent of the box office right which is far far less than the first week it, it they make all of their money off of refreshments off of concessions. And that's why you see a lot of these theaters now converting to dine-in theaters where you have, instead of 300 seats in a theater, you'll have 60, but they'll have tables and they'll have a wait- waitress or waiter come bring you food at your seat because that's where they're making their money. They have a liquor license in that. So that's not going to go away. I think that'll continue. And I think you're going to see theaters switch over to those models rather than just cramming people in, hoping they buy popcorn. You're going to see a lot of theaters that are dine-in and stuff like that. Um, But yeah, I think smaller independent films, I think, you know, general, you know, the average rom-com and things like that, you're going to see start to switch over to the premium streaming services probably, right? I think, um, but that's just my opinion. What's your take on it?
1: Uh, I love going to the movies and as someone that's been pretty careful with COVID, uh, I've only been to the movies about four times in the last two years. Uh, one of which was actually a full theater uh, rent out to see uh, the James Bond film for my father-in-law's birthday, which was pretty fun. I've never I've never done that. I always wanted to like be one of those kids growing up that had like a birthday party renting out a movie theater, but right. I, I never did it. I don't know why, Me either. but it was like five of us in a theater and it was really fun. Um, but look, I, I've gone enough now that like I've worn a mask and it's been okay but I definitely feel more comfortable at like an Alamo draft house than I do at like a gigantic theater where it's hundreds and hundreds of people. If, if only mathematically it's diminishing my, uh, risk, but I I think you're spot on. It becomes selling the experience beyond just the scope of seeing a movie on a big screen, but, but I wouldn't discount the value of a movie like Top Gun Maverick Mm where that shared experience of being in a group and people are cheering and fathers are crying with their sons is like something that I've been hearing. Uh, I think there's such a level of joy that is reached with the best version of that, that you just can't replicate by watching at home on your couch. Right. From like a, Hey, yeah, there's inflation standpoint. You know, it is a cheaper or more economic option to have your own snacks on the couch at Mm -hmm. home. And you're not paying 25 a ticket and you're not paying 15 bucks for a cocktail. But if we move out of the pandemic and inflation kind of gets back to normal and we have a typical economy, I'm hopeful that things will continue to progress in the right direction in terms of the theatrical model. Yes, it will be driven by more event type experiences, but then I think like theaters will gear themselves more towards How can we sell liquor? Mm -hmm. How can we, how can we get rid of the idea of dinner and a movie in terms of two separate things and really kind of have a one-stop shop where people come a little early and they hang Mm -hmm. out at the bar and then they go up to their seats and they order some food and it becomes the, like the, the night is, is the movies and and eating and drinking there. I I think if that can become more of a thing and done so at a reasonable price point Mm -hmm. where it makes sense for more people that can keep the theater experience uh, as a thing and perhaps go beyond the scope of just the blockbusters, the big tent poles and things like that. So I I love, I love the fact that I live in downtown LA, two blocks in one direction is the Alamo draft house, four or five blocks in the other direction is the Regal at um, LA live. Mm. Like that means a lot to me. I think if I, if I had to answer, why do I work in the industry it was going to the movies as a kid going to see jurassic park with my dad when i was like six or seven sneak getting making a fake id get into some r-rated movie i think it was uh, road to perdition Mm. like that i think the theater going experience more so than any other reason is why i love what i do
0: Mm -hmm. road to perdition was a comic book it was really good um you know and i'll i'll say also about seeing a movie in a theater and even in a lot of economists will call uh movies recession proof obviously everything changes with when you have inflation because people can't afford as much other stuff when you're having to pay so much for food and for gas things that you cannot live without right but when it comes time for entertainment Obviously, the lowest level of that is just television, right? Because most of the time you have a TV and you just pay for electricity, which, you know, and and that's that. And then streaming services and on that. But I think in a recession, in hard economic times, people will have to forego potentially expensive vacations. They can't go to Disney World. But most people can still go to a movie, right? They can still spend the 20, 50 bucks, whatever it is to buy tickets and some popcorn to go to a movie or even, you know, 100 bucks for dinner, but spending two, three, four, five, six grand to go on a cruise or to go to Europe or to go to Disney World. Those are things that people during hard times cut back on, even if they can afford it, they cut back on stuff like that, whereas films, that's an entertainment source that is relatively people would argue that paying twelve dollars for popcorn or whatever is not affordable but you know what i mean all things considered it's relatively affordable and so uh, even in hard times movies tend to do okay right the, the great depression recessions it, it it tends to hold out because people still need to, to go out they need to enjoy life and to do it on a relatively affordable basis. I think movies offer that, you know, in a theater I'm talking about, right?
1: Yeah, I think comparatively, right? Like if you think about other forms of entertainment that entertain you for two hours, we'll right. say, right? Uh, if you price movie theater experience versus concert versus sure. sporting event, movies are always going to win. And, yeah. and if it rises to the point of must-see spectacle mm-hmm. event it can evoke the same level of joy as going to see a concert or going to see us. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so that was great. This this was a good way to sort of wrap it up. There are a few more questions, which let me filter through these real quick. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Simba Dbinga. Hey, Simba when trying to get a rep, is it wise to shelf a topical script because it's been called too controversial? Ooh, that's juicy. Um, I shelved a pilot about Second Amendment after being told it was too hot. I could actually see that. Um, But I I would love to get your take on it.
1: Yeah. Someone had actually asked me about something similar. I would Mm -hmm. say that there are certain hot button issues that, again, just my opinion, just my take probably don't want to talk about it's probably going to make it too easy for someone to say no rather than the provocative nature being additive so uh, use your best judgment if you think it's leaning towards inflammatory or something that just this general fatigue towards the subject matter it is probably wise to table knowing that at some point in the future maybe it is worth approaching i just i wouldn't want that to be the reason why you don't get read. No matter how strong you think it is, if it falls into the category of like, yeah, most people probably have no appetite for this, probably not the project to lead with, even if it is strongest on the page.
0: Right. And I would, to. while I completely agree with what you had said, I would say if you're determined to go down that route, maybe you have to be very, very targeted about who you approach. Uh, I don't know who is you know, uh, takes a a strong stance on second amendment within the industry. I honestly have no idea, but like for climate, right. If you're talking about climate change, going to Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio, Appian way, someone like that may be more open to looking at that type of material because that's a cause that they believe in and have been open about it. Uh, but so if you're going to go down there, you're determined to try to find somebody who's made statements that mirror what your script is about. I mean, that's just my.
1: Yeah. I think my sentiment speaks to the idea of like, if you're living in a world where it has something to do with like a school shooting, Mm. people really don't want to see that. Right. Or if you're pro guns, that's not Hollywood. So like, don't, don't, don't touch that.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, I, I defer to your advice first, but if the writer's saying, you know, I really think this is the one, then, you know, uh, yeah, I guess
1: just have thick skin and be willing to take a lot of yeah. uh, rejection.
0: Right. Um, Jim Lepezzo, uh says, really enjoying this. Well, thanks, Jim. Uh, thank you so much to both of you for taking the time. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, question, speaking very broadly, is age a deterrent in terms of how an unrepped writer is perceived?
1: Most people will say no. Some people won't sign you if you're too young or too old. Uh, I, I think for me, it's more of like I'm reluctant to take on clients that are super, super young, like right out of film school, unless they're incredibly talented, but also mature. I think that's the issue for me. Like someone's like in their 50s, even 60s. OK, like I'd like to get a sense of what their journey has been. Like if someone's been trying to write since they're 20 and they're 60, I'm probably not going to be interested because it's like what what what's happened over those years, like it Mm -hmm. should take 40 years to kind of crack in. But if you were like, oh yeah, I was a lawyer or an architect and I always wanted to write and now I've been doing it for the last five plus years, that's interesting to me. I I think that you'd have the perspective to draw from that can inform your writing and that's cool. So yeah, for me, it's more of like, have you just failed for 40 years or are you right out of film school and lack the life experience and overall maturity to be able to handle? The many ups and downs of trying to be a working writer.
0: Mm-hmm. And what I would add to what you had said is, does it come across in your writing, right? A lot of younger writers, it feels very young and not in the sense of, oh, you can write young voices, but the writing itself, the, the themes and, the, and the, the concepts and the writing, the structure, everything feels young. But the same could be true for if you know, older writers, right. Is, are all your references super old and yet it's supposed to be contemporary, you know, those types of things. Right. So just be cognizant of that. I think that that would be the the one thing. Um, okay. Uh, let's see here. Simba again, is it better to pitch more commercial screenplays or screenplays you think might be more awards bait?
1: I think it just depends on the person Mm -hmm. that you're pitching to. Um, I think for me, it's most important about the quality of the writing. Uh, Even if it is something on the smaller side, something that's indie fair, if it's really well executed, that's interesting to me. But I'd also have the same expectations for the commercial thing, just because something is commercial and fits into a marketplace. It still has to be good. It still has to be compelling writing. So I, I, ideally, something is great and commercial, just in terms of, is this going to make a splash? Is it going to be easier? Yeah, Probably. But there are some people that are going to be equally as intrigued for the indie stuff that's strong mm-hmm. on the page. So I'd say right. focus more about quality rather than what bucket it actually fits into.
0: Right. And, and like you had mentioned, though, too, uh, it depends on the individual. So target based on who you're approaching, right? Certain individuals will be more inclined to like commercials, high concept stuff, and some would be more inclined for the award, you know, bait stuff. Um, and
1: that goes, that goes like for me as well when mm-hmm. I'm setting up projects to executives or producers sometimes i send stuff that's like a little too high brow for certain executives and they pass and then it's like i, I sometimes i get confused like why did they pass it's like oh like their taste is definitively in this space and they're mm-hmm. not going to respond to something that's a little bit more cerebral or a little bit more of a challenge to to read because the writer is writing at, at a high level rather than like at, at a Definitively, middle of the road commercial approach.
0: Right. Uh, let's see here. Ian Martin, Top Gun Maverick was an event movie. Uh, I didn't see it yet. Have you seen it? I have. You have? Yeah, I loved it. Well, I love the first. I've seen the first Top Gun, maybe fifty times. Right. I used to own the old, you know, DVD and watch. it So yeah. I, I've seen it a million times. But so I'm excited to see it. But I haven't seen it yet. Um we need more of these star Wars used to be classic or class as an event movie, which, yeah, that's true. Uh, we need the spectacle back. Oh, and mid budget films as well. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see more uh, mid budget films, but I know the economics of it is, is challenging. Although I will say going back to your discussion on, on movie theaters, mid mid budget films, all that middle stuff became difficult because of the costs, you know, printing cost that used to be a huge cost of printing and transporting film prints and gigantic canisters now with digital that's not the case so i mean maybe mid-budget films do come back like you would said you know indies and all that because it doesn't cost much to distribute them nowadays like it used to
1: right that's a good point i'm hopeful i mean that's kind of stuff that like i I like having a wide array of different types of things to go to the theater like i don't need to just see top gun maverick at the theater like i want to see like sundance darlings uh at like 9am on a saturday at like a little small theater like that that's very charming to me but right. I, that's it's not making a lot of money
0: yeah that's a true movie lover right uh last uh last one from simba do you think the dodgers championship should have an asterisk because it was won during a pandemic uh you guys took mookie from us in boston i'm gonna say no because the, the pandemic has its own challenges, the bubbles and all this and that, and like the Lakers NBA, you know, I'm going to say no, but then, you know, we've been the beneficiary of shorter seasons and when whatnot, but uh, I'll defer to our esteemed guest here.
1: Uh, I don't view it as such, uh, but I would like them to win this year. And I think that will feel a little bit more satisfying. We so, got a
0: guarantee, right?
1: Yeah. Dave Roberts. Yeah. Um, so Yes
2: if you compare
1: it to a non-shortened season, is it as significant? No. Does it need to have an asterisk? I don't think so. It's not like right. it was a player-induced shortened season. Sure. It was, it was uh, you know, act of God, if you will. So right. for that reason, I'm okay with it. But I, I would personally feel more satisfied with them winning in, in, a, in a 162-game season.
0: I agree. I agree. But then here, let me take you down a different path uh would what would you say about confirmed uh steroid users right like the bash brothers the a's seasons where uh both jose canseco and mark mcguire right positive where barry bonds and giants right where alex rodriguez right in his years with the the yankees Are those asterisks worthy if they were confirmed? I'm not sure, you know, which ones and the timeframes involved, but if they are confirmed uh, steroid users, should they have asterisks as well? I mean, not just a Hall of Fame career wise, like, you know, they're going to have a harder time getting into the Hall of Fame, but should their championships or even the Houston Astros, right, with their cheating scandal, so to speak, uh, should that have an asterisk? Should they be taken away? That kind of thing. What do you think?
1: I don't think so. I think it's just too hard to gauge like how you compare one versus the other. I think it should be commented on in terms of the history of the game. Right. uh, There were these circumstances with these particular players where this was done and perhaps precluded other teams from the success that they would have gotten in different conditions. But I think I always think about the idea of the players that have achieved the success that's at the level that should be in the Hall of Fame but it's not because of these mm-hmm. allegations or even, you know, positive tests. I think there should be like a different wing perhaps of the baseball hall of fame right. where they yeah. are included, but it is spoken to in a way that's like, yeah, it, it comes at a cost or with, you know, this the caveat that they did test positive. Right. Uh, it's bad for like players like Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds mm. that would have been hall of famers regardless. Right. Can't always make that determination, but I would with them.
0: Right. And, you know, I think that with the steroids, yes, there are those that we know who did it, whether it's, again, it's the Clemens or the uh, 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 Alex Rodriguez or whoever, but it's likely far more prevalent than we realize. Like it was probably a lot of people that haven't been identified that were very well juicing too. But what I will say about the going back to Simba's comment on the Dodgers having an asterisk uh the thing is everyone had the same like if you view a shortened season as an advantage everyone had the same advantage right it was still the same it was just a little shorter everyone had the same advantage everyone was in the same boat so to speak right they didn't have an advantage over everyone else it was just a little shorter and yeah maybe a little bit easier but so to me that doesn't warrant an asterisk and i'm not saying that that you know seasons where someone is confirmed to have juiced and they won a championship that they should be having asked per se. But I'd say, I think if you were going to make that case, you'd probably have a stronger case saying, because even if there were other people juicing it on the opponent's team, you don't know that. So if you want to put an ask, I'm not saying you should, I'm just saying, you know, at least you don't know the, the unfair advantages of one team over another.
1: My biggest takeaway is like, if you think about the pitchers in the nineties that clearly didn't take steroids, like mm-hmm. Greg Maddox, for example, Yeah, six, one hundred seventy pounds, Right. Was still unbelievable. Could mm-hmm. you imagine what he would have been if he wasn't facing uh, that that generation of like steroid users? Sure. It 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 would be a statistical uh, statistically significant difference. Right. Um, and I think that's kind of my mindset of reflecting on how well some players did in spite of having to face these challenges.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Agreed. Agreed. Um. So yeah, we've gone over an hour and a half. I appreciate you coming out and, and talking to us again, opening the season. Like we'll have to have you do every time, but uh, as well as coming in during the season itself, but uh, you're always our a a one go-to guy to come in and kick the season off. Right. Um, so no, thank you again, as always, Dan, it's, it's a pleasure.
1: Oh, I appreciate it. This is fun. These were great questions. Like sometimes you know, I do a lot of like panels and things and mm-hmm. it feels like the questions are very familiar and whatever. And, these, these were good, like people really dug deep and I, I felt challenged in a good way. So um, appreciate the effort. And I think like that's that's always cool to see. So thanks to the writers that submitted questions.
0: Yeah, no, thank all of you for joining us today. And if you're interested in uh, our other, the other half of the Twin Towers of, of scripts and Scribes, lit manager representation, greatness. Uh, we've got on John Zalzerny next Saturday, same time, 10 a.m. Pacific. Uh, But as always, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Enjoy Hollywood Boulevard. I hope Uh, (laughs) your your friends, family, whoever's coming out has a good time.
1: I much appreciate it. Thanks, Kevin.
0: Um, So thank you all for joining us today. We will catch you next week. uh, Same time next Saturday. John Zalzerny. Thank you, Dan. We'll have to have you back on during the season. Uh, We've got a long run of months here, so I'm sure I'll be uh, bugging you to come back on some point very soon. Sounds good. Thank you, and uh, thank you all for watching. We'll catch you next time.